Okay, anyone, um, anything stick out from the homework you guys did from last week, if you did it? Anyone watch the video? No? Daniel, anything stick out? Yeah, um, I forgot that cycle. Uh, yeah, was good. Clever. Yeah, I used that for my outline. Was good. Diso disobedience, he's talking about the cycle of the judges. But disobedience leads to um, discipline from God, which leads to deliverance for God's people. <coughs> well, let's uh, start by opening the word, and let's open it by praying. So, Mark, let me just ask you, I just saw Ben, I want to ask you, would you pray for our time together? Thanks, brother. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to thank you for this time that you've given us to come here and study from the Old Testament, Lord, we know that there are some difficult passages, sometimes it's hard to understand, but Father, we pray that may you open our eyes to see the truth and even uh, see the presence of the gospel uh, in the Old Testament. Lord, uh, let it edify our hearts as we continue our long living here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm just going to shift this a little bit since you guys are all over there. There we go. So... Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Joshua. We're looking at Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. If you don't have a handout, go ahead and raise your hand or a pen if you need that, and Ben will get you one of those. Um, last week, we sprinted through 97 chapters of the Pentateuch. So today, we're going to take a nice slow jog through 49 chapters of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So Joshua, if you look at verse 1, begins with the death of Moses. At the end of the book, the book ends with the death of Joshua and the priest Eleazar. If you remember your Old Testament history, Moses led the Israelites to the land in numbers, but the first generation refused to enter. And so God disciplined them in the wilderness. They all died. Moses himself was also refused entry. So God appointed a new Moses in Joshua who led his people into the land. The book of Joshua is all about the conquest of the promised land, which is a fulfillment of that promise given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So if you look at your outline, I divide the book up into four sections. All of these sections can be divided up by verbs used in reference to the land. So if you see chapters 1 through 5, any guesses what that is? Entering the land, perfect, that's right. Entering the land. So, that's where we're going to start. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, my, uh, my throat's acting up a little bit, so bear with me as I work through this. But um, In the first four chapters of Joshua, the author, which we don't know who that is, but we know for certain it is God, makes it clear to us that Joshua is a new Moses. So if you look there, verse, chapters 1 through 4, or 1 through 2. Joshua is a new Moses. So as the Lord spoke to Moses, so in the first verse of Joshua, the Lord speaks to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. In verse 7, the Lord exhorts Joshua, Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. We're going to see a theme here in the book of Joshua, which is land. So land comes up over and over again 
But just as important as the theme of land is the theme of law. So how do these two work together? Residence in the land depends on obedience to the law. If God's people obey, they get to stay. In chapter 2, as Moses sent spies into the land, so Joshua sent spies. These spies made a prostitute named Rahab, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8. She says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. So apparently, even before the Israelites entered, news of the Exodus had traveled before them and made it into the land of Canaan. God was working for his people, for his glory, and this was even before they entered the land. So Rahab hides the spies. She's saved from destruction. If you look at verse 24 of chapter 2, instead of a bad report, which is what happened in the first um, going with numbers, they return and say, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. So in chapters 3 through 5, we see they're passing over the Jordan. Passing over the Jordan. Turn to chapters 3 through 5. If you remember, Moses led the Israelites across the Red Sea on dry ground. So Joshua led the nation, passing over the Jordan River, verse 17, on dry ground. In chapter 5, as Moses circumcised the Israelites and led them in the Passover, so Joshua circumcises the second generation and leads them in the first Passover in the land. Now the author is making it abundantly clear. This is a new Moses. He's ready to lead the people into the promised land. At the end of chapter 5, Joshua is by Jericho, and he's about to take the land, but he encounters an angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. This angel has his sword in his hand, so Joshua asks him, Hey, whose side are you on? Are you on ours or theirs? But the commander responds, Neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Now this strange interaction, it helps us see that the, for the Israelites, the real enemy, the real enemies of God, it's not simply someone by nationality like the Canaanites. The real enemies of God are those who rebel against the Lord. And we'll see, not only with Rahab, but the entire book of Joshua is actually a subversion of the idea of ethno-nationalism. That just because you're an Israelite, you're part of God's people. Or just because you're a Canaanite, you're to be destroyed. The people of God are those who follow by faith. The enemies of God are those who don't. So now they've entered the land. <coughs> the second section, chapter 6 through 11, is taking the land. Taking the land, chapter 6 through 11. Now this section is divided into two contrasts. So if you see there in your handout, the first one is in chapter 6 through 8. It's with Jericho and Ai. And the next one is with the Gibeonites and the Canaanites. So <clears throat> in chapter 6, the conquests begin, starting with the fall of Jericho. They're ready for battle. They've been waiting for battle. But then the Lord gives Joshua the battle plan in verse 3. Look there in verse 3. It's a strange battle plan. He says, march around the city once per day for six days. Then on the seventh day, march seven times. Finally, the priests will blow the trumpets, the people will give a shout, and the wall of the city will fall. That's the battle plan. The Lord says, I'm sending in the band, the marching band. And guess what? It works. 
Look at verse 20. So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and the wall fell down. Verse 21, then they devoted all the city to destruction. You see here God's faithfulness to his people on full display. But, again, this is a contrast. So look at chapter 7 and 8. The focus shifts not to God's faithfulness, but to Israel's failure. After victory, victory at Jericho, chapter 7 begins with this little word, three letters. But, but, the people of Israel broke faith. So before taking Jericho, Joshua gave the instruction. He said, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Chapter 6, verse 18. But Achan, the son of Carmi, disobeyed. And the anger of the Lord burned. Now all of this was hidden from Joshua and the Israelites. None of them knew about this. They found out when they were defeated in battle by the people of Ai. Joshua cries out to the Lord in verse 10. Why have you done this? The Lord responds, Israel broke God's law. Now if Achan's eventually found out. He never comes and confesses. Uh, the people stone him. And you can see here that secret sin affects an entire community. But in chapter 8, <coughs> as Israel repents, they take I and they devote it to destruction. Verse 26. Now there's a second contrast here in chapters 9 through 11 with the Gibeonites and the Canaanites. The Gibeonites actually trick Joshua and the people to make a covenant with them. They lie about where they're from and Joshua falls for it. They do make the covenant. If you remember all the way back to Exodus, so chapter 12, verse 38, when Israel left Egypt, they left as a mixed multitude. What does that mean? It means that some Egyptians said, I'm getting out of here. I'm going with you guys. And they left with them. They joined God's people. Here again, in Canaan, some had heard about what the Lord was doing through the Israelites. And instead of fighting against them, they decided to join with them. However, not all the Canaanites do that in chapters 10 and 11. In chapter 10, five kings fight against Israel, only to be, to be defeated. Then the southern, southern Canaan is conquered. It's devoted to destruction. Northern Canaan is conquered. It's devoted to destruction. And after, <coughs> at the end of chapter 11, it might feel like, you know, we've done this in about 10 minutes, that this is a pretty quick conquest, but it actually took... Seven years of fighting. Then we read this in verse 23 of chapter 11. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and the land had rest from war. So in chapter 6 or 11, the repeated phrase was taking the land. Now they took it in section 3, which is chapters 12 through 22. They divide the land, dividing the land. Now, chapter 12 begins with a summary of all Israel's victories. If you look there, the first section is about Moses' uh, battles. He defeated two kings. Then the second section is Joshua's battles. He defeated 31, 31 kings. God fought for his people. Then the land's distributed in chapters 13 through 22. You might think this is not the most exciting reading. Land distributions to 12 tribes. Each of them receive a portion. Excitement's not really the point of these chapters. 
The point is, detail by detail, that God fulfills his promise to Abraham. He promised in Genesis 12 to give him a people and a land. Here we are in Joshua. Look at um, chapter 12, verse 45. No, that's not the right verse. I don't know what verse this is, but here's what it says. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's the point. Now, just as Deuteronomy ends with a charge from Moses to the people, Joshua ends with a charge from Joshua to the people. In chapters 23 through 24, Joshua urges them to be serving the Lord in the land. Serving the Lord in the land. Now, in chapter 23, he reminds them of God's faithfulness, and he charges them in verse 6, Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Michael, that verse reference was 2145. You know, it's funny. That's what I had, but I think my Bible was opened up to chapter 12. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Yeah, 2145, right? Thanks. So he says, be strong, keep all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Here's Joshua's plea with them. If you're unfaithful, you'll be exiled. In chapter 24, Joshua gathers all the tribes. He asks them a question in verse 15. Who will you serve? Of course, they respond, well, we're going to serve the Lord alone. But in verse 19, Joshua disagrees with them. He says, you're not able to serve the Lord alone, for he is a holy God. Then Joshua, (coughs) at 110 years old, dies, along with Eleazar the priest. And we finish the book of Joshua with this question. Who will Israel serve? Will they serve the Lord alone? And that's the book of Joshua. So the melodic line which is kind of the main point of the book, is there at the top of the page. Staying in the Lord's land requires obedience to the Lord's law. Okay, I'm going to take a breather. You take a second. Everyone write down one question that you have on Joshua. Um, there's one chapter yeah. that um, he said that Le- Le- Levites will not receive an inheritance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the Levites were one of the 12 tribes. They didn't receive an inheritance because the Lord himself was their inheritance. So that's what he says with the Levites. They're to be totally devoted to him. Good question. All right, take a second. Write a question. I'm going to blow my nose. Okay, who's got a question? Who's got a question? Anybody? Did anybody write down a question? Raise your hand if you wrote down a question. Okay, take a second and write down a question. I have a question. Yes. You mentioned early on about um, 
the enemies are those who disobey, not based on ethnicity, uh, ethno-nationalism. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little? Yeah. A little more. Yeah. Um, so um. <coughs> And maybe to clarify that, not strictly based on that. So obviously God's people is a nation, Israel, and the enemies are the people in the land of Canaan. So if you remember why they're even going to the land of Canaan, um, I think this is in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but God highlights two reasons, because the people in the land are um, sacrificing their own children, and they're just blatantly sexually immoral. So God wants to destroy them. He wants to judge them for that. Now, those are nationalities. Those are peoples. And they go in and, you know, the repeated phrase throughout Joshua is, devote them to destruction. Mm-hmm. But there's little hints here and there. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it with Rahab, who is not part of God's people, yet becomes part of God's people. Mm-hmm. And then a- um, Achan, who's part of God's people, yet actually proves himself to be, you know, mm-hmm. one of God's enemies. So it's not strictly that. Even it is that, but it's not strictly that. Even the wilderness generation don't, don't get in the land just by very that's right. being yeah. God's chosen people. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Mm. Somebody else. One more question, and we'll move forward. Shiny, I think we can get you a chair somewhere, probably. There's um, some over there. Thanks, Ben. Um, in chapter 24, verse uh-huh. it says, uh, I sent the hornet before you, the yeah. program out before you, the two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your own sword, but by your boar. But, sorry. Yeah. Who's the hornet? What is the hornet? Hornet, I think literal hornets. Yeah, so God had sent them into the land um, previous to Israel coming there. Yeah. Good question. Would that evoke kind of the, or echo the kind of way that God drove out the Egyptians, or like with plagues, plague them with pests? <coughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. All right, I've got a question for you. What's one thing that stood out to you about Joshua? One thing that stood out. And I know pretty much everyone's name, so I can call on people if I need to. You mean about the book or about the Yeah, book? the book of Joshua, yeah. Terry, what about you? Anything stand out? Um, I guess for me, God's mercy, his hmm. mercy extends far and wide. Yeah. So it's not just for the Israelites, but when you mentioned about the mix of people. Yeah, mixed multitude. Yeah, mixed multitude. Um, so his mercy also extends. Yeah. So even for Rahab. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. One more. Something that stood out to you in Joshua. Yeah? I think that um, God fulfills all of his promises. You know, when we read the, the allotting of the land, it can seem a bit dull sometimes in our yeah. Bible reading. Mm. But when you look at the bigger picture of how God's so faithful and has fulfilled all of that mm. for his people, really, really, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm. good. It's good. All right. We're going to Judges. Judges, page two of your handout. <clears throat> if you remember that question, Keep that in the, the back of your mind. The question at the end of the book of Joshua. Who will you serve? So 
So just a quick recap. Genesis, if you remember, God promised to Abraham to make him into a nation with the land. Exodus, God heard the nation of Israel's cries, delivered them from oppression in Egypt. In Joshua, the nation of Israel entered and conquered the land. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, perhaps at this point you'd expect the phrase, and they all lived happily ever after. The end, the book ends. But if you remember Joshua, there was a cloud looming over Israel at the last chapters as Joshua himself warned them that they would not obey the Lord. He asked them, will you serve the Lord alone? And the book of Judges answers the question emphatically. No. In my opinion, Judges is the darkest book of the Bible. The darkest book of the Bible. We see the depravity of man. It's on full display. Ironically, it's not from the nations. It's from God's chosen people, the Israelites. As they even sacrifice their own children to the gods of the nations. And yet again in Judges, we're reminded over and over again of God's grace and salvation. They don't deserve it. But again and again, God sends them judges to deliver his people. So if you have your Bible, open it up. Judges, in chapters 1 and 2, we see the unfaithfulness of Israel. The unfaithfulness of Israel. Look at verse 1. After the death of Joshua. I just want to pause here for a second. We're in verse 1. We've only read five words, but it's important to point this out. Four books of the Old Testament start with this phrase, after the death of. Anyone know what those books are? Four books in the Old Testament. We just read one of them. Joshua. Joshua. Good. Judges. That's two. We got two more to go. Any ideas? Second Samuel. Second Kings. Now in this, we kind of get, in the Old Testament itself, a picture of the gradual decline of Israel. So, If you think back to Joshua, who died at the beginning of Joshua? Moses. Moses. He was incredible, right? This was a guy that talked with God as with a friend. Joshua, so that's Judges, after the death of Joshua. He was pretty good, but he wasn't Moses, right? Second Samuel, anyone remember who dies there? Saul. Saul. Yeah, not a great guy. Second Kings, after the death of Ahab. Ahab was one of the worst kings of Israel. So we see here something. From the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ, God's people are on a downward trajectory. Back to Judges. Uh, One helpful way to understand the book, or any book of the Bible, is to look at the very beginning, and then look at the very end. So if you look at verse 1 again, um, Judges begins with the question, Who shall fight the Canaanites? The Lord answers the question. He says, Judah. Now at the end of the book, not quite the end, but pretty close, chapter 20, the question is, who shall fight the, anybody know? The Benjaminites. Benjaminites. They're a tribe of Israel. And yet, the Lord again says, Judah. So they start with war against the nations, and the book ends, because of their depravity, with a war against themselves. And it all begins with a little gradual decline in verses 2 and 3. So look at verses 2 and 3. So the Lord said to them, send Judah. But you know what Judah decides to do? They say, well, why doesn't Simeon come and join us? 
It's slight. It's subtle. But it's an act of disobedience. And by the end of this book, this little crack turns into a total rift. So in chapter 1, the conquests begin to fail in verse 19. And the author repeats this phrase. They did not drive out. They did not drive out. It's verse 28, 29, 31, 32, 33. So their conquests are failing. They're not fully driving out the people that they're supposed to. And the question is why? Why do they fail? We get the answer in chapter 2. An angel of the Lord answers the question. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. The angel says, You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Their battles fail because of their disobedience. And if they would have obeyed the Lord, they would have experienced his blessings. But instead, they disobey, disobey and they get to experience his curse. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 19, the author gives us a summary of the entire book. So if you have your Bible, this might be a little helpful place to flag. 6 through 19 is a summary of the whole book of Judges. What do we see? Joshua died. A new generation arose. They forgot the Lord. They turned to idols. The Lord was provoked to anger. He gave them to their enemies. They cried out in distress. And the Lord raised up judges to save them. For 300 years, this is the pattern that repeats over and over again. It takes us all the way from the death of Joshua to the coronation of Saul in 1 Samuel. So, if you look at the second section, it's a downward cycle of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. Chapters 3 through 16. A downward cycle of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. Now you might wonder, why is it downward? Look at chapter 2, verse 19. The author says, Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. And the climax of this corruption is at the end of the book, chapters 19 through 21. But first, we're going to see the judges. So if you look at your handout, 2A, um, there's six or maybe seven major judges. There's a few minor judges. I'm going to give a brief overview of them. And we'll start in chapter 3 with Othniel and Ehud. So in chapter 3, we see the cycle begin or repeat. Verse 7, the people did evil. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled. And he sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. Verse 9, the people cried out, the Lord raised up a deliverer who saved them. Othniel was Caleb's younger brother. In verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. You'll see that repeated throughout the book. And after he delivers the people, there's rest for 40 years. So that's the cycle. But guess what? Othniel dies. In chapter 3, the cycle repeats with the second judge, Ehud. He's left-handed. He's paying tribute to this fat king. And he thrusts his sword into the king's belly. The land again has rest, this time for 80 years. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we meet Deborah and Barak. Now, Deborah is a prophetess. It's interesting. We, we can't really tell who the judge is in this chapter. It says that she was judging Israel in verse 4 at that time. But it's not clear if she's the judge or if Barak is. What's interesting is she goes and rebukes Barak. So he's sitting around 
And she says, hey, the Lord commanded you to take an army and fight Sisera. In verse 8, Barak responds to her. He says, well, I'll go if you'll come with me. It's conditional obedience. It's cowardly disobedience. And Deborah responds, well, if I go, verse 9, the Lord will give Sisera into the hand of a woman. At the end of this story, we're expecting Sisera to fall into the hand of Deborah. But it's interesting. The Lord uses Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, not an Israelite, and she drives a stake through Sisera's head. Now, some people go to judges and they look for leadership lessons for the church. You know, how do we structure our church leadership? And honestly, I think judges is probably the worst place to go for that. But here's what we do see. Judges teaches us that we cannot limit how God works. So in this chapter alone, the men are absent. What does he use? He uses a woman. And at that, he uses a non-Israelite woman to accomplish his purposes, to save the people of Israel. Then in chapter 6 through 8, we get to Gideon. When the Lord calls Gideon, he's quite scared. So God gives him a double reassurance that he will be with him and he'll fight for him. So Gideon defeats the Midianites with only 300 men. That's it. Then he defeats Zeba and Zalmunna. And at the end of chapter 8, the people ask Gideon. They say, hey, you're amazing. We want you to be the king over us. But there's one problem. Israel already has a king. Look at 8, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It's a wise move by Gideon. But his wisdom turns to folly in verse 27. He makes an idol. And the Israelites whore after it. He also breaks God's covenant because he has multiple wives and 70 sons. Here's the worst part, though. One of his sons, Gideon names Abimelech. Anyone know what that means? Any guesses? Abimelech means king. Yeah, Abimelech means my father is king. So Gideon, the guy who turned down the kingship, names one of his sons, my father is king. Ironic. In chapter 9, we have an interlude in the book. It's all about Gideon's son, Abimelech, who's not a judge, but the only king. The only king, Abimelech. So remember, Abimelech has 70 brothers, right? In verse 5 of chapter 9, he kills them all on one stone. He's a brutal man. In verse 6, Abimelech becomes Israel's first king. Before Israel was oppressed by the nations, now they'll get oppressed by their own king. He's called the Bramble King because he chokes out those who are under his shade. He rules three years, and in verse 23, the Lord sends an evil spirit to disrupt his leadership team. Now, his reign began by killing 70 brothers on one stone. In verse 53, his reign ends with a woman throwing a stone and crushing his head. In chapter 10, we get a few minor judges. We see that cycle repeat. Disobedience, discipline, deliverance. Then in chapter 11, we get to Jephthah. Jephthah. He was the son of a prostitute. His own family throws him out. In verse 2, they tell him, hey, you're not going to have an inheritance, for you are the son of another woman. So they kick him out. They reject him. Then they need his help. 
because the Ammonites are fighting against them. So they ask him, hey, would you come back and rescue us? And he's like, hey, 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 whoa, I'll only come back if you make me your head. They agree, he agrees, and then he gives the longest speech in the book of Judges to the king of the Ammonites, verses 14 through 27. Now there's a word he repeats over and over again, inherit. That's the Hebrew word, it's repeated eight times. In the ESV, it's translated as possession. Jephthah cares a lot about his inheritance. That's what he wants. A verse later, uh, (coughs) excuse me, Um, In verse 30, or 29, I think, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And then in verse 30, he makes a tragic vow. The chapter ends with him sacrificing his only inheritance, his daughter. If you think that's bad, it only gets worse. Because in chapters 13 through 16, we have the worst judge. The worst judge, Samson. couple things about Samson. He's born to a barren woman, so he's a miracle baby. And he's a Nazarite. <clears throat> Being a Nazarite means three things. He's to keep away from dead bodies. He's to keep from trimming his hair. And he's to keep away from wine. Those are the three rules. Guess what? Samson breaks all three. In chapter 14, he sees, notice that word, a daughter of the Philistines. And in verse 3, look there, he takes her as his wife. Because he says, for she is right in my eyes. After a couple battles with the Philistines, where the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson, we think his story is over in chapter 15. Look at verse 20. So chapter 15, verse 20, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. You think, okay, that's Samson. But in chapter 16, the story starts all over again. Again, verse 1, Samson does what's right in his own eyes. He saw a prostitute, and he went into her. But finally, his lust turns to love in verse 4 with Delilah. He loves her, but she doesn't love him back. After four attempts on his life, Delilah finally breaks him down, and she finds the source of his strength in verse 17. Look there with me. He says to her, if my head is shaved then my strength will leave me. Now Samson attributes the strength to his hair, but actually his strength isn't from his hair. His strength is from the Lord. Think about this. Samson, as a Nazarite, his whole body was to be devoted to the Lord. His whole body. In a sense, his hair was the last thread that he hadn't defiled. And then it's cut off. So after following Samson's eyes, in chapter 16, verse 21, the Philistines gouge out his eyes. Even then, though, God is gracious as Samson is placed between two pillars at a party. There's 3,000 Philistines there. He's their entertainment. And look at verse 28. He cries out to the Lord, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So one last show of strength, Samson takes out the Philistines along with himself. But notice what he said. God used Samson to save Israel, even when Samson dies only being concerned about himself. So, you might think that is the darkest section in Judges, but it's not. We're not yet there. In the last section, 
chapters 17 through 21, we see the total depravity of Israel. The total depravity of Israel. So one scholar calls this section lights out. Lights out. Because it's total darkness. There's not one good character to emulate in these chapters. We begin in chapter 17 with Micah and the Levite. Micah ordains one of his sons to become his priest for his household gods. Look at verse 6. And you'll see this phrase repeated four times in these last chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now remember, the problem was not that Israel didn't have a king. It's that they didn't want to follow the king they already had, which was the Lord. And if you think back to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which we were in last week, Levites were so prominent. Priests were so prominent to the storyline. Where are they in Judges? They're nowhere to be found. But in verse 7, a Levite shows up. Micah hires him to be his personal priest for some clothes and some silver. The Levite cares about the money. And in chapter 18, the tribe of Dan finds out about Micah's little private temple. And they capture the priests. They set up his idol for themselves. Now we get to chapter 19. Chapter 19 is perhaps the darkest chapter in the whole Bible. We find a Levite, a concubine, and a civil war. A Levite, a concubine, and a civil war. Now just to recap the book real quick, as I blow my nose again. Um, Judges has the most score in the whole Bible. It's got the most score. Chapter 1, thumbs and big toes are cut off. Chapter 3, a belly is pierced. Not like a belly button piercing, like a sword. Chapters 4 and 9, two heads are crushed. And in chapter 16, eyes are gouged out. But in chapter 19, a concubine is cut up. Chapter 19 begins with that phrase, In those days there was no king in Israel. A Levite took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now she leaves him. And apparently he doesn't care because it takes him four months to go track her down. In verse 12, he's finally bringing her home. He decides not to stay in a city of foreigners. He wants to stay in Gibeah, a city belonging to Israel. Perhaps it's safer there. So they arrive at Gibeah. And Gibeah turns out to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. The men of the city request the Levite to come out so they may know him. I'm sure you know what that means. It's a wicked city. And yet the Levite's response is even more wicked. In verse 25, he seizes his concubine and he throws her out. They defile her until the morning. And then the Levite wakes up callously. And he says, get up. She doesn't move. So he cuts her into pieces. And he sends her body parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, it doesn't even say if she's dead yet. The author just leaves that. I hope she was. The story is meant to shock us. It's so bad in Gibeah that the Israelites assemble 400,000 men to attack Gibeah. But the Benjaminites rally to help the Gibeonites. And 40,000 soldiers die. The tribe of Benjamin's nearly decimated. They have no wives. So, 
to solve that problem, they decide to go kill off a city, raid a festival, and steal their wives. It only goes from bad to worse. And look at the last line of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a dark book. The melodic line, Israel disobeys the Lord their king, so the Lord disciplines them, then delivers them through judges. Okay, take a second. Write down one question you have about the book of Judges. One question. Who's got a question ready? Just to clarify yep. question, yep. is Abimelech the only king the whole time in Judges? Because he becomes king, but then there's no other king yeah. until... He's the only the king. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Somebody else? Question. Can you unpack the title judge a little bit more? Yeah, so judges, um, if you remember in Deuteronomy, each town were to have judges that were to kind of be the people that um, they come to if they have disputes and stuff. So that's perhaps where it originates. But these judges in the book are obviously uh, more like warriors. So um, I didn't go through this, but almost every judge uses like weapons as they fight off the enemies of God. So they're kind of like warrior tribal chiefs of the people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Hebrews 11, Jephthah and Samson appear there. Yeah. Is that like weird to you or, and or is that like God? It's a great question. That he, it's him that was working through them. Yeah. So here's, um, so Jephthah is the one with the tragic vow, kills his own daughter. And Samson, of course, we, we heard a lot about him. The interesting thing, and I didn't get into this in Judges, but the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they do terrible, wicked things. So somehow we have to reconcile those two. And I think the New Testament is helpful for that. So though these people, so many of them are so depraved, it's God's grace that he still uses them, and despite their flaws and failures. Somebody else? One more question. Okay, one thing that stood out to you in the book of Judges. Yeah. Yeah. They finally make it to the land, but... Their hearts have not been circumcised. How quickly they go from yeah. from like being <coughs> s- sinful in the wilderness to but like 
they quickly like become very wicked. Yeah, Joshua dies, and then it says there arose a generation who didn't remember the Lord. One generation later. Actually, it's interesting. Moses, his grandson, um, near the end of Judges, I can't remember where, he actually leads the people into idolatry. Moses' own grandson. It's crazy. <clears throat> okay. Ruth. Four chapters left. Short little book. Now, Ruth, I've titled it, is God's providence, God's kind providence in Judges. Oh, in Dark Days. There we go. Something like that. Something like that. So, chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see Naomi's bitter days. Naomi's bitter days. So the context is set in verse 1. What do we notice? It's in the days when the judges ruled. So the days of the judges. And we've just been in judges. These are dark days. Due to a famine, <coughs> excuse me, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons leave the promised land and they sojourn in Moab. Immediately in verse 3, Naomi's husband dies. She's left with her two sons who take Moabite wives, but then her two sons die also. So in just a few verses of chapter 1, Naomi loses her family. She loses her family. So the book starts with three widows. But then we see Ruth clings to Naomi. So one of her daughter-in-law is Ruth. The other one's Orpah. She tells them, go return to your homes. In Naomi's mind, God is punishing her. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. She says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She thinks the Lord is punishing her. But it doesn't matter. Ruth won't leave her side. She clings to her. So they both return together to Bethlehem, where Naomi changes her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter. Then in chapter 2, we see Boaz's, Boaz's noble provision. Boaz's noble provision. So, new character shows up on the scene in chapter 2. His name is Boaz. Ruth and Naomi need food, and it just happens to be the barley harvest. And they just happen to end up on Boaz's field. There's two important things to know about Boaz. One, Boaz was a worthy man. Look at verse 1. He was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Now, keep in mind, this is the time of judges. There's not a lot of worthy men out there. But there's at least one, and in God's providence, Ruth and Naomi meet him. Boaz even gives instructions to his reapers. He says, don't harm Ruth. He shows her incredible generosity. This is all in line with God's law, if you remember. In Deuteronomy 24, God told the Israelites to care for the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. And that's, that's Ruth. So, Boaz is a worthy man, verses 1 through 16. Boaz was also a redeemer. Verses 17 through 23. So we learn that Boaz is a redeemer. It's a key term in the book of Ruth. It's used over 23 times. So you better know what it means. Good place to go to find out is Leviticus 25, 25 through 28. A summary though is if someone was in a position of enslavement 
or destitution. Think vulnerable widow. Close relatives had an obligation to redeem them and then to care for them and perpetuate the name. So we find out Boaz is that redeemer. In chapter 3, Ruth's hopeful proposition. So uh, Ruth and Boaz, um, that might be their celebrity name, um, they meet on the threshing floor, and we see Ruth's hopeful proposition. Think back to Judges 19, where the the concubine was assaulted. Ruth, chapter 3, is the antithesis of Judges 19. Because, verse 11, Ruth was a worthy woman. Ruth was a worthy woman. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. Now here's what's interesting with that. Um, You could put Ruth after Judges, which obviously they fit very well. It's in the time of the Judges. And right before 1 Samuel, the end of the book, I'll give you a little spoiler. Um, (coughs) Ruth is told that she's like seven sons to Naomi. 1 Samuel starts with a... um, What's that guy's name? Hannah's husband, which is Elkanah. Hannah is barren, and she can't have any children. And Elkanah says to her, aren't I worth more than ten sons? So there's a clear textual connection between the books and the placement of Ruth. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is actually placed after Proverbs 31, which fits also because Ruth is the worthy woman. It's ironic, though, because where's Ruth from? She's not the model Israelite. She's a Moabite, yet she is the model Israelite. So, in chapter 4, we see David's royal (coughs) genealogy. Chapter 4, first, Boaz redeems Ruth, verses 1 through 12. Then Ruth is told she's worth more than seven sons, verses 13 through 17. They get married. She has a son. Everyone calls Naomi blessed, the woman who thought she was cursed. And in chapters 18 through 22, Ruth has a royal offspring. So remember, we're in the days of the judges where there was no king in Israel. It's repeated over and over again. Yet here we are in Ruth, and we're introduced to Ruth's royal offspring, David. This is a book where God's rarely mentioned at all. But we see his providential kindness in some of the darkest days of the judges. All the losses that Ruth and Naomi experienced are reversed by chapter 4. God brings his widowed Israel from ruin to redemption. That's the melodic line. Oh, no, I wrote something else there. Anyways, they're both good. They both fit. Okay, one question about Ruth, and then we're going to get into thinking about Christ and some application. Can I make a comment? Yeah. One thing that's interesting after you asked about the name Abimelech in the last book, yeah, and then here Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech, which means my God is king. Yeah, good. Which is really ah. interesting. I wouldn't have noticed that if you hadn't mentioned it. Good, yeah. Write down one question about Ruth. It's nice to end on a hopeful book.
Okay, who's got a question about Ruth? Anybody? One question about Ruth. Ruth, does your name come from Ruth? There we go. You're named after a Moabite. Can you speak at all to the threshing floor situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, the threshing floor. Let's go there, chapter 3. Keep in mind, this is the antithesis of Judges 19. So keep that in the back of your head. This is what you could say is the anti-sex scene. No sexual relations happen in this passage. Some people say, like, she uncovers his feet and there's sexual connotations there in Hebrew. Here's what I think. Ruth is a worthy woman. That's what, that's what it tells us. In the time of Judges. So, I don't think any of that's happening. Boaz is a worthy man. I don't think any of that's happening. I think they're having a conversation. That was your question, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Just checking. Just making sure I didn't go down some rabbit hole. <laughs> Is that just more of like a cultural thing than how that was done about? Or is there, like, just it's weird when you're reading it, it's hard to... <coughs> yeah, it is. Where she proposes to Boaz. Yeah. But what was Naomi's intention of sending to here? Yeah. I mean, I think we see the intention to, to have him redeem them. Yeah. So she's already recognized that he did the honorable thing with protecting Ruth in the... When the, she's vulnerable, yeah. She's vulnerable, and she's a foreign woman. Yeah. But no one takes advantage, and he makes sure she's protected, and gets even more than the law required for yeah, that's right. a woman. So yep. Clearly, Naomi's not like, oh, maybe we can... Seduce him, or, yeah. Seduce him. I don't think so. And the text tells us they're worthy people, so they're noble. They have character. Especially think of Proverbs 31 and that textual tie there. Okay, any other questions with Ruth? Let's get into looking at Christ and Joshua. So turn to page two. <coughs> Joshua, his name alone. Anyone know what it means? Anyway? Now I'm second-guessing myself. Something about salvation. Right? I thought it was meant God is our Savior. But, you know, I'm not going to look it up right now. I think that's what it means. And um, Jesus' name comes from Joshua. In many ways, Jesus, uh, Joshua is a type of Christ. He leads God's people into their promised rest. Um, Ark of the Covenant, too, is interesting. And um, if you remember, they crossed the Jordan. The Ark goes first. So the ark goes first, and that makes the way for the people to come into the promised rest. I think in some ways that's a type also. Um, rest, so that's what they want, and that's what they get, but it's so short. It's a temporary rest. Read Hebrews 4. God's people need more than a temporary rest. We need an eternal rest, which Christ provides for us. Getting to some application, if you remember, land was key, but so was law. So obey God's word. It's as simple as that. We also see here culture, ethnicity, nationality, 
All these things are subservient to the kingdom of God. So the Gibeonites are included. Rahab is included. <clears throat> and if you look at that last application, I know some Christians who are still waiting for the promised land. You know, And um, the question I have is, what land do we as Christians hope for? What is our inheritance? And some good places to look are Hebrews 4 and Ephesians 1, chapter 11. What applications would you make from Joshua? He will bring it to yeah, us. yeah. Trusting God's promises. Good. And I think even recognizing like position. I think at hmm. some point the Israelites be like, "Oh, God should be on our side," but rather yeah. we ought to be on His, on side. his side. Yeah, that's right. Good. It's good. Somebody else, Joshua. One application you've been thinking about. Think about how quickly the, the nation turned in the beginning of the book. Yeah. I guess at the beginning of Judges, but after, sure. maybe, okay, maybe I'll say this one for Judges. Yeah, say it for Judges. Good. Good, good. Well, we do see some, I was going to say, we do see the fragility of the people yeah. even in Joshua, because when they did, when they don't obey, and we've got Achan and things like that, Yeah. but even at the end, they almost have a civil war. Um, yeah, that's right. Between I skipped that part, but yeah. Several tribes. Yeah. About because, worship. Because about worship, yeah. and they think that they're breaking the law already. Yeah, that's right. Go go. So there's just like, already you can see that there's potential. It's fractures, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Judges, let's look at judges. Okay. Lots of antitypes of Christ. <clears throat> Christ, if you look at the antitypes, he offers himself for us. Jephthah offers another. Samson dies with his arms stretched out, calling for vengeance. How does that not make you think about Jesus? Arms stretched out, calling for forgiveness for his enemies. <clears throat> Isaiah picks up on the language here. The Messiah doesn't follow his own eyes. But Samson does that over and over again. Samson's deliverance is just partial. He begins to deliver his people. Christ delivers fully. Also, Jesus Christ is the perfect judge who is our Savior. And he gives us that rest again like Joshua. Some applications. That first one, honestly, I read Judges this week and I just thought, we live in a dark world. It's dark. And in many ways in Dubai, we're shielded from a lot of that. Because, you know, the streets are so clean and, you know, there's never crime and as, as far as they say. But... It's a messy world we live in. And we also see, if you read Romans 1 with Judges, sin deeply affects God's people. (coughs) One other thing, I was thinking about this a lot with Judges. We need leaders with integrity. So the Judges, the Saviors, each of them have flaws. Some of them even lead the people into idolatry. But if you think about the qualifications for elders, 1 Timothy 3 or 1 Peter 5, they're to be men who are giving an account to the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. What other applications would you make from Judges? (sighs) 
the line that they did was right in their eyes. Yeah, yeah. I feel like um, it's so clear from the book of Judges that apart from God, there is no, like, like doing what is right or, like, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, even just, like, obeying God's word and um, trusting him. And yeah. What he says is true. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Somebody else. One application from Judges. In, uh, in chapter 2, when it, it said the, after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, then the next one grew up and they, did, they all of a sudden didn't know. Yeah. And it seems like somewhat of a shortcoming on behalf of the older generation that all of a sudden the younger generation knew nothing about what had happened. Yeah. And so I think an application is to be reminded of of like what God has done and like being quick to... Mm-hmm. Like pass that on because yeah. it doesn't take very long for them to just fall away. That's good. That's good. Yeah, if you remember, that was actually part of the law to pass it down to the next generation. You know, write it on the door frames and write it on the tassels and remind them, but it doesn't happen. One more judges, one application. Partial versus complete obedience. So they yeah. they do some of what the Lord tells them to do yeah. getting in the land, but then they don't fall fill the complete they didn't drive them out completely yeah and yeah keep saying like the canaanites lived among them and they lived among the inhabitants and mm-hmm. they don't fully obey yeah and they do part part way yeah and it seems too with that they cry out when they're oppressed but then the moment they're they have rest they just turn back to their old ways Pretty sad. All right, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth. Last one. <clears throat> of course, Christ is our Redeemer. So that's a beautiful picture. He is our kinsman Redeemer who buys us from slavery to sin, brings us home. He also comes from the line of David. That's maybe the clearest textual um, clue. Um, <clears throat> a couple applications from Ruth. These are dark days, remember. You might read Ruth and go like, this is an amazing time. But remember, it's the days of judges. And yet, they trust God's providence during these times. And they remain faithful during these times. So I think the same is true for us. Any other applications you guys would make from Ruth? Just that faith is not genetic. Mm, good. In a sense that it sort of like kept fading in the time of judges. And we see here more of a woman. Trusting in Naomi's God. Yeah, that's right. Good. It's not genetic. Yeah. One more. One more. One more application. I think for... um, us in the New Covenant, even, we, there's a call to care for those that are vulnerable yeah. and needy. And yeah. You see a really wonderful example of that in Boaz caring for yeah. That's Ruth right. and Naomi. And even Ruth caring for her mother-in-law. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's right. Practically, uh, you know, supporting her. I think that's important for us as a church. Good. Yeah, good. Appreciate it. Mark, would you close our time in prayer? Sure.